Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Paul Smith and in today's episode I'm joined by John Boyne, the best-selling author of books including The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas and A History of Loneliness. He's here to talk about his latest novel, The Heart's Invisible Furies, and John has brought along five objects that have influenced his writing in some way. John, welcome. Thank you. John, The Heart's Invisible Furies is a portrait of Ireland over a period of 70 years, from the 1940s to the present day, seen through the eyes of one man, Cyril Avery. The illegitimate son of a teenage girl cast out by the local priest and disowned by her family, Cyril is adopted as a baby by a well-to-do but eccentric Dublin couple. As he grows up, he finds himself adrift and questioning who he is and where he came from. John, you were born in Dublin yourself. What was it like writing about your native country? Well, it's only the second time that I've done that. I've published 15 novels between the books for adults and books for young people. And The Heart's Invisible Furies is only the second one set in Ireland. My previous adult novel, The History of Loneliness, was also set in Ireland. But for many years before that, I found that my imagination seemed to take me outside of my own country. Most Irish writers tend to write about Ireland. Mm -hmm. But I had always said that I wouldn't do it until I had a story I really wanted to tell. Yes. So it's been great for me now, the last two books, just writing about the streets I grew up in. You know, this starts in the 1940s. I wasn't born until the 70s. But a lot of it is uh, the kind of culture that I grew up in. So it, it's kind of, um, I find, sort of opening a like a, a mine of memories that I didn't use in the first 13 books. Mm-hmm. So it's been kind of a pleasure, actually. Even though, say, A History of Loneliness, the previous book was very bleak because it was about child abuse scandals in the church. And this is a book also about, you know, a troubled character in a way. They were both very enjoyable to write in that way because I was finally tapping into my own country. Well, without further ado, let's hear from the audiobook of The Heart's Invisible Furies, read by Stephen Hogan. In this extract, Cyril Avery's mother, Catherine, leaves her hometown of Galeen for Dublin. As expected, the bag was waiting for her when she got home, neatly packed and propped up next to the front door her coat and hat thrown on top of it. She discarded these over the arm of the sofa, for they were hand-me-downs, and she guessed that the Sunday clothes on her back would be more valuable to her in Dublin. Opening it now, she checked for the sock purse, and there it was, its secret as carefully concealed as her own had been until the previous evening, when her mother had walked into her bedroom without knocking and discovered her standing before the mirror with her blouse undone, one hand stroking her convex belly with a mixture of fear and fascination. The old dog looked up at her from his place in front of the fire and offered a lengthy yawn but didn't trot over with his tail wagging like he usually did, hoping for a pat or a compliment. She went to her bedroom and took one last look around for anything she might want to take with her. There were books, of course, but she'd read them all and there would be books at the other end of her journey too. A small porcelain statue of St. Bernadette stood on her bedside table and for no sensible reason that she could think of other than causing irritation to her parents, she turned its face to the wall. There was a small music box too, her mother's originally, where she stored her keepsakes and treasures and she began to sort through it as the ballerina turned and the melody sounded a tune from Pugni's La Esmeralda, before deciding that these things belonged to a different life, and she closed it firmly, the dancer bending forward at the waist before disappearing from sight altogether. And grand, she thought, as she left the house for the final time, before making her way along the road to the post office, 
where she sat on the dry grass until a bus arrived. Taking a back seat by an open window and breathing steadily throughout the journey to stop her from getting sick as it took her over rocky terrain into Ballydahob and the front of Leap, onwards to Bandon and Inishowen before twisting north into Cork City itself, a place she had never visited, but that her father had always said was filled with gamblers, Protestants and drunkards. For two pence, she drank a bowl of tomato soup and a cup of tea in a cafe on Lavitt's Quay, and then walked along the banks of the River Lee to Parnell Place, where she bought a ticket for Dublin. Do you want to return? the driver asked her, shuffling his satchel as he rooted around for change. You'll save money if you're coming back again. I won't be coming back, she replied, taking the ticket from his hands and placing it carefully in her purse, for she had a sense that this might be an item that would be worth holding on to a paper memory with the date of the beginning of her new life stamped across it in heavy black ink. So Catherine leaves her small town in the county of Cork and goes to Dublin. She's been cast out by Father Monroe, the priest at the, the church in her hometown, and she seems to me a very strong character, even at this early stage in the book. I suppose, to me, the, the sort of spirit of Cyril is there in his mother at the beginning of the book. You know, you, you've obviously written about the, the Catholic Church before. Did you want to continue that thread in this and show, and show the, the human effect, I suppose, on somebody in a small town? Yeah, I felt that having written The History of Loneliness, which was all concerned with the church, it almost seemed natural to me that I would begin there with this. But I, I didn't want this to be a novel about priests or nuns. And religion, in a way, plays a very small part in the story as it goes on. But I wanted it there at the start and I wanted Catherine to be uh, thrown out of her, her hometown, but for her not to be a victim, really. So even though she's only a teenager when she's left alone in the world, she's never downhearted about it. She's never pessimistic. She never feels sorry for herself. She's completely willing and able and anxious even to start a new life in Dublin, to find a life for herself, to get a job, to find a place to live. And as she sweeps in and out of the story over 70 years, she shows that spirit that you talk about, which even though Cyril has never met her as a child because he's been adopted uh, from you know, a day or two after his birth, uh, has somehow found its way into his character as well. Well, we should start talking about the objects that you've brought. The first ones that we've got uh, are models of Tintin and Pinocchio. We've got Tintin there with lots of books spilling out of his arms, trusty snowy at his feet and Pinocchio in the corner with a, a nice little red hat which is quite fetching. Could you tell us about these and why they're important to you? Yeah I like these models and they're in my hallway at home and um, you know when I come into the house I, I see them almost immediately and they bring me back to childhood really and to um, my love of books when I was a kid which really defined the path that my life would, would go on. I loved uh, Tintin when yeah, I was a kid. Me too. Loved him. Yeah, he was great. And they're such unusual books, I think, you know, in their uh, their format and the, the picture books and the detective and everything. And uh, I still, I have like the whole set of them mm. at home. And um, when I when I look back at them, it just gives me pleasure. It reminds me of childhood, which is, an, you know, it's an important time for all of us in our lives. But of course, I also write for young people as mm -hmm. well as writing adult books. I, I move between the two. So it, it reflects that in some way, as does the Pinocchio 
um, doll, which stands there as well. And I used Pinocchio a little bit in my second book for young people, Noah Barleywater Runs Away, which was about a puppeteer. So it, it's it's really just a reminder of two things that really were wonderful for me, childhood and books. And that's why I brought them along. At what point did you realise you wanted to be a writer? Is that kind of rooted in childhood? Oh, very much. I, I found from the age of about seven or eight that the the acts of reading and writing were completely connected, that I, I couldn't really do one without doing the other. And even at that age, what I was doing was taking characters from stories that I had read, books that I was reading, and writing new stories for them. I had this kind of um, stationary fetish. And I found that a lot of writers do, that, yeah. you know, paper and pens when you were a kid. I had so much of them and I loved blank pages. I loved when my mum would go to the shops asking for her to bring me back some foolscap paper. And I still do, even though I don't write by hand. You know, I have beautiful notebooks at home yeah. that I'm, I'm almost afraid to write in because I don't want to, to destroy them. And then I also <laughs> think, though, I should use them because, you know, there's no point like having a candle and not burning it. You know, yeah. but, So from very young, I felt this was just... It was part of my nature, it was part of who I who I was. And when, you know, adults would say to me as a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I always said I wanted to be a writer. And for some reason they would they would laugh, you know, they think <laughs> was this is a eccentric thing for a, a nine year old to say or something. <laughs> but I just I, I never found it funny. I just thought, no, this is I didn't know if I was going to have the talent for it. I didn't know if I was going to it's gonna work out. But it was certainly from that age the only thing I wanted. Well, speaking of childhood, Cyril in the book has quite an unconventional childhood. Let's dip back into the audiobook of The Heart's Invisible Furies and meet his adoptive parents, Charles and Maud Avery. Of course, when I say my father, I don't mean the man who handed two green pound notes to my mother outside the church of Our Lady Star of the Sea in Goline seven years earlier to soothe his conscience. No, I mean Charles Avery who, along with his wife, Maud, opened their home to me after signing a sizable cheque to the Redemptress Convent for all their help in the matter of finding a suitable child. From the start, they never pretended to be anything other than my adoptive parents, and, in fact, schooled me in this detail from the time I could first understand the meaning of the words. Maud claimed that this was because she didn't want the truth to come out at a later date, and for me then to accuse her of deceit while Charles insisted that it was because he wanted to be clear that, while he was happy to go through with the adoption for his wife's sake, I was not a real Avery, and would not be looked after financially in adulthood in the manner that a real Avery would have been. Think of this Moore's tenancy, Cyril, he told me. They had named me Cyril for a spaniel they'd once owned and loved. An eighteen-year tenancy... But during that time, there's no reason why we shouldn't all get along, is there? Though if I had a son of my own, I'd like to think he would have been taller than you and shown a little more skill on the rugby field. But I suppose you're not the worst. God only knows whom we might have got. Do you know at one point there was even a suggestion that we take in an African baby? The relationship between Charles and Maud was cordial and businesslike. They had little to do with each other most days exchanging no more than a few cursory sentences necessary to the efficient running of the household. Charles left every morning at eight o'clock and rarely returned before midnight, when he invariably spent a minute or two on the porch, trying to fit his key into the lock, and not caring if he reeked of drink or cheap perfume. They didn't sleep in the same room, or even on the same floor, nor had they ever done so since my arrival. I never once saw them hold hands or kiss, 
or say that they loved each other. But for all that, they never fought. Maud's way of dealing with Charles was to treat him like an ottoman, of no use to anyone but worth having around. While Charles showed scant interest in his wife, but found her presence both reassuring and unsettling, much like Mr. Rochester must have felt towards Bertha Mason as she rattled around the attic of Thornfield Hall, a relic from his past that remained an inexorable part of his daily life. Quite an unusual parent-child relationship, I would say. Well, when, when I started writing about Charles and Maud, um, I knew I didn't want to turn them into kind of like Dickens orphan parents, you know, that would be mistreating him and, yeah. you know, sending him up the chimney to clean the, <laughs> the soot out or something. I wanted to turn the, the novel somewhat comic at this point. And I just liked the idea of this this couple who were almost baffled by Cyril's presence in the house and would be perfectly happy for him to be there, but had no particular connection to him. He becomes almost the parent, I think, in the relationship there. Uh, he is the sensible one. They treat him from the age of, from the, when we first meet him at seven, they speak to him like he's a grown man. They make very little allowance for the fact that he's actually a child. But they, they, are, they are kind to him. They never mistreat him in any way. They never do anything to hurt him. And he has a, a fondness for them, mm-hmm. as they have for him. But it's just, uh, it's not necessarily the kind of relationship any, any of us would want to have <laughs> with our parents. But somehow for them, it just works. Throughout the book, there's an idea of home that keeps being returned to. Cyril searches for somewhere where he can find home. Is that something that you felt you were, was important to you during the, the book, that that was a kind of recurring motif? I, I think the, the recurring motif for Cyril is the fact that he does love Ireland, but trying to fit in there, trying to feel like he belongs. Of the, the 10 chapters in the book, eight of them take place in Ireland and two of them take place in, uh, one in Amsterdam and one in New York. But he always wants to go back to Ireland and he feels uh, because he's gay and he's growing up in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s in Ireland, which would not have been the easiest country to have grown up um, gay he feels completely lost there and never quite fits in with anybody. This brings us on to your next object, which you haven't been able to bring to the Penguin Studio today, as it is in fact your house in Ireland. Yeah, I've lived in it now for almost 10 years, but it's only about 10 minutes away from the house that I grew up in. Mm. Um, because I'm actually, I'm very much a, you know, we were just talking about Cyril and his, uh, and fitting in in Dublin and Ireland. And I feel that because I'm, I'm very much a homebody. I love Dublin. Over the years, I can see all the problems in Irish society and the, the things that have led me sometimes in books to talk about those. But I couldn't live anywhere else. I love travelling. You know, I travel a lot with my books and uh, for festivals and book tours and so on. But there's no place I, I'd rather be than in my house. And I have a study there. You can see the front window there is yeah. the study, which is where I generally would write the first draft of my books. And I have this recurring dream. I don't know what it's. I have it every three or four weeks that I've sold the house and gone to live somewhere else and immediately regretted it. And I know I will never sell that house because it just, I don't know, I feel safe there. Yeah. You know, it just, it's, I close the door, I just feel very safe and secure. I think when you, when you find a place where you do feel that you belong, then, you know, that's a terrific thing. And do you do most of your writing at home? I tend to write first drafts at home, but because I travel quite a bit, I can write on the road. Yeah. Uh, I'm happy to write in airports or trains or planes or hotel rooms. I always have a, a book on the go. I'm always working on a project. Yeah. But uh, I have to bring that project with me. You know, there's in my bag here in the studio, 
there's a laptop with the next draft of uh, the next book sitting there. So, so I, I have to have that. But I find the first draft I like to have maybe a couple of months at home where I can just completely focus on, on that. This new book is over 70 odd years. You, you know, you need to be disciplined, I assume, to, to get everything in order. What kind yeah. of what's your writing routine for this book? Well, I've always been very disciplined in, in my writing um, from a very young age. And I've always been an early riser. You know, I, I tend to be at my desk quite early, about half seven, eight o'clock. I think that goes back to when when I was writing my first few books, my first two books, I was I was working in a bookshop in Dublin. You know, it had to be in at normal time, nine o'clock or whatever. So I used to get up at about half past five and write for two hours before going to work so that the book would be moving along a few mm-hmm. pages every day. And it's just stayed with me ever since. And I'm at my most creative in the morning. So I tend to write up to about lunchtime then maybe a little bit in the afternoon. I, I never write in the evenings or night. I just, I see it very much like a day job in that sense, yeah. uh, that I, I prefer to, to just to work like that. And I, I just, after a few hours, after four or five hours, I feel that's that's enough new work that can be done. Your brain is yeah. fried. Well, we've talked about Cyril's sometimes strained relationship with his adoptive parents, but the other relationship that dominates his life and the book is his friendship with Julian Woodbead. In this extract from the audiobook of The Heart's Invisible Furies, Cyril and Julian escape from their boarding school together. Having enjoyed our brief escape from the clutches of Belvedere College during Julian's short-lived career as a TD, we decided to try our luck on the outside more often. Soon we were visiting city centre cinemas for afternoon matinees or strolling through the grounds of Trinity College to go up at the Protestants who seemed to have been dehorned by some benevolent shearer upon admission. We were drawn to the record and clothes shops along Henry Street, despite the fact that we could afford very little, and when Julian stole a copy of Frank Sinatra's Songs for Swinging Lovers from a market stall, we ran all the way back to school, delirious with the exhilaration of youth. A few weeks after our visit to the doll, We were walking along a Connell Street one afternoon, having fled Parnell Square after a particularly tedious geography class, and I felt a spontaneous burst of joy that I had never quite known before. The sun was out, Julian was wearing a short-sleeved shirt that accentuated his biceps, and my pubic hair had finally kicked in. Our friendship had never been closer, and hours stretched before us where we could talk and exchange confidences, excluding anyone and anything from our tiny universe that didn't interest us. For once, the world seemed to be a place filled with possibilities. That was Cyril and Julian there and their relationship. Quite different characters. This is a slightly naughty question, but which of them do you prefer as a character? Oh, I I definitely prefer Cyril. Good. Um, (laughs) I mean, Julian, who is Cyril's first crush and uh, he goes through his teenage years just lusting after this boy who's completely oblivious. And, you know, I mean, that's an experience that, that probably every gay person has, has had in their lives. And Julian is kind of selfish in his way, but he's not mean either. I mean, we were talking earlier about Cyril's parents. There are no villains really in the book. They're no. just people kind of living their lives and occasionally hurting other people without meaning to. So Julian is selfish because he's extremely good looking. He's always popular. Um, he gets all the girls that he wants. And, you know, he just seems to live a charmed life. But, you know, he cares about Cyril. He's his friend. Uh, he just doesn't know how Cyril feels about him. But Cyril is a deeper character. He's more thoughtful. 
He's more complicated. He has a lot more going on in his head. Julian's head is fairly empty. <laughs> I think most of the time he's just beautiful, which is fine. Obviously, Cyril is quite obsessed with this unrequited love that goes on for a large portion of his life. How do you get into that that kind of obsessive nature when you when you're writing? Do you, obviously we all have those well, memory. Un- yeah, <laughs> well, this is it. We, we all have we all have a bit of that in there. Yeah. But I mean, obviously, as you get older, it, it becomes harder to remember. And obviously, you do, you've done a lot of um, of work for younger readers as well. Mm. How how do you f- tap into that side of your of your, of your to tap into your childhood essentially? Well, maybe it's because of that. Maybe it's because I, I, I still write so much for young people and about young people that I I am kind of clued into my childhood and my teenage years quite a bit. I'm a bit like Cyril in that way. You know, I'm, I I think about things like that a lot and I, I remember them. And I think as a novelist, when you, you know, in writing a book like this, where I am tapping into a lot of emotions that I myself would have had at those ages, it just sort of organically comes back and you remember those feelings you think about this person or that person and how you felt and the crazy things that you did yeah. and the mortifying things that you might have done and that, you know, we still probably do all of us in our, our lives. Yeah. And um, But again, I wanted it to, to make him, I didn't want to make him charming uh, or the, the, you know, the butt of a joke as such in, in the story, but uh, I wanted to make him a, like a little bit embarrassing at times, but aware of his own ridiculous actions. Yeah, well... Your next object is actually a few objects. You've brought along a selection of your favourite books. So we've got a stack of books. This is, I'm assuming, related to your obsession with reading. Yeah, related to reading and also related to this book in particular. Mm -hmm. Um, Because if I start from the the bottom up, David Copperfield's is probably my favourite book yeah. of all time. And I don't, I'm not a big rereader, uh, but I think I've read David Copperfield three or four times. And I got into Dickens when I was about 12 years old, particularly the orphan books, this one and Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby. And they're very much comfort books. They're things that, that I just, I, I love Dickens so much. And then the second one up, um, John Irving, The Cider House Rules. John Irving, of course, is a great Dickens fan as well. And uh, many of his books... Uh, relates to Dickens in some way. In fact, there's a character in the Cider House Rules called David Copperfield. But my novel, The Heart's Invisible Furies, is dedicated to John Irving because John was certainly my literary hero growing up and remains so. And when I published my first book 17 years ago, I sent him a copy of that book with a a fan letter um, telling him how much he'd influenced me. And very kindly, he read the book and wrote back to me and we formed a friendship over the years um, since then and he's been sort of a mentor to me over the years and he often writes about what he calls sexual misfits Mm -hmm. and that's one of the things at the centre of this book and then the next one Edmund White A Boy's Own Story I mean that's kind of a classic gay novel that most teenagers would would read under the covers and be slightly frightened of and I remember my experience of reading that and Edmund White of course is one of the I think one of the great gay writers of of our time and one of the great chroniclers of the uh, the changes in society particularly in New York society between sort of the 50s and today and again in my book I was trying to chronicle the changes in Irish society Mm -hmm. in, in that time. Then The Slap by Christos Chalkas, an Australian novel, is just a, a book that I, I really love. And we're going to talk about Australia, I, I think, in a, a little bit. And Jonathan Coe's What a Carve-Up is, I think, the funniest novel I've ever read. And I was thinking about that when I was writing the book because I hadn't written comedy before. I hadn't written a comic novel. And to me, that's the best one of all. And then finally, Belinda McKeown, her, her novel Tender, about uh, two years old now, another Irish writer, but a very interesting story in that of a friendship 
between a gay man and a girl. And she has the crush on him, which is not a story you read about very often, and even starts to challenge his sexuality because they are so close. And in some ways, you know, my friendship between Cyril and Julian, uh, although a different gender, also explores that idea of, you know, a a friendship where one is gay and one is straight and and how complicated that can be. Um, How important do you think it, it is to be a big reader in order to be a writer? I mean, to me, I think it it's seems, really, yeah. I think it's really important. I've, I've taught a few times on creative writing classes, and I remember about ten years ago teaching a class for undergrads, going around the room with about twelve people and asking, "What, what are you reading at the moment?" And about three or four people were reading, and the rest hadn't read a book in ages. And then I said, "How many people want to be novelists in ten years' time?" And they all put their hands up. And I was like, "Well, can't you see a, a disconnect <laughs> here somewhere?" I mean, for me, you know, I mentioned earlier from that from childhood that reading and writing were always connected. They they remain so for me. I read a, a lot. I'm a voracious reader, and I like to keep on top of all the new books that are coming out. That either from friends or people I may, might meet on the circuit, or just books that people are talking about that are getting good reviews. Uh, I, I like to be part of that conversation. Yeah. I also like to have a, an author on the go all the time, like a classic author, and try to work through his or her body of work over the course of however long it takes me. You know, every sort of fourth or fifth book, go go back to that person. I'm reading Somerset Maugham at the moment, um, The Razor's Edge. And I think it's the fourth or fifth Somerset Maugham I've read since Christmas. And I'm just working my yeah. way through through his books. Does your reading influence your own style and voice? I don't think it affects my style at all. Or if it does, it happens on a very subconscious yeah. level. Um, I don't read for that reason. I read purely for pleasure. Yeah. Um, I read the same reason today that I read when I was six or seven or eight years old, just because I like stories. I like books. I like being lost in those stories. My imagination, obviously, is important to me as a writer. So I like getting lost in the imaginations of others. Well, in this next extract from the audiobook of The Heart's Invisible Furies, Cyril explains his struggles with coming to terms with who he is. It was a difficult time to be Irish, a difficult time to be 21 years of age, and a difficult time to be a man who was attracted to other men. To be all three simultaneously required a level of subterfuge and guile that felt contrary to my nature. I had never considered myself to be a dishonest person, hating the idea that I was capable of such mendacity and deceit, but the more I examined the architecture of my life, the more I realised how fraudulent were its foundations. The belief that I would spend the rest of my time on earth lying to people weighed heavily on me, and at such times I gave serious consideration to taking my own life. Knives frightened me, nooses horrified me, and guns alarmed me. But I knew that I was not a strong swimmer. Were I to head out to Hoth, for example, and throw myself into the sea, the current would quickly pull me under, and there would be nothing I could do to save myself. It was an option that was always at the back of my mind. I had few friends, and even when I considered my relationship with Julian, I had to admit that our bond was built on little more than my obsessive and undeclared love. I had guarded and nurtured that alliance jealously over the years, ignoring the fact that were it not for my determination to stay in touch, He might have moved on years ago. I had no family to speak of, no siblings, no cousins, no idea as to the identities of my birth parents. I had very little money and had grown to hate the flat on Chatham Street, for Albert Thatcher had acquired a serious girlfriend, and when she stayed over the sound of their lovemaking was as ghastly as it was arousing. 
I longed for a place of my own, a door with only one key. In desperation I turned to Charles, asking for a loan of one hundred pounds so that I could set myself up in a better situation. I had seen a flat above a shop on Nassau Street with a view over the lawns of Trinity College, but I could never have afforded it on the pitiful salary that I earned. The loan, I told him, would allow me to live there for two years while I saved money and tried to build a better life for myself. We were sitting in the yacht club at Dunleary when I broached the idea, eating lobster and drinking moe and chandon, but he refused me instantly, declaring that he didn't loan money to friends, as such acts of philanthropy always ended badly. But we're more than friends, surely, I said, throwing myself on his mercy. You're my adoptive father, after all. Oh, come along, Cyril, he replied, laughing as if I was making a joke. Twenty-five years old now. I'm twenty-one. Twenty-one, then. Naturally, I care about you. We've known each other a long time, but you're not... I know, I said, holding up a hand before he could finish that sentence. It doesn't matter. Of most concern to me, however, was my overwhelming insatiable and uncontrollable lust, a yearning that was as intense as my need for food and water, but that, unlike those other basic human needs, was always countered by the fear of discovery. There were nighttime excursions to the banks of the Grand Canal, or the clustered forests at the heart of the Phoenix Park, furtive explorations of the narrow laneways off Baggett Street, and the hidden passages that zigzagged from the Happeny Bridge towards Christchurch Cathedral. The darkness concealed my crimes, but convinced me that I was a degenerate, a pervert, a Mr. Hyde who left my benevolent Dr. Jekyll skin behind on Chatham Street as soon as the sun went down and the clouds passed slowly to cover the moon. In that clip, we can hear that Cyril is a criminal. Same-sex sexual activity wasn't decriminalised in Ireland until 1993, and it seems crazy now to think of it, but, you know, as we see and live through Cyril's life with him, we get to understand the, the idea that he's like a degenerate, and there's one quite shocking but also a quite funny trip to a doctor where the doctor says there are no homosexuals in Ireland, so you can't be one. I think people who are a bit younger won't even be aware of, of this, and it, it now seems quite shocking to us, but it's up until the latter half of the 20th century, this, you know, to be gay in Ireland was to be a criminal. Yeah, and it isn't that long ago, which, no. which, which is what makes it so strange that Ireland became the first country to, by public plebiscite, to, to vote for equal rights marriage. But... Uh, I think it must have been, like, I'm, I'm a lot younger than Cyril is in the book, but I think it must have been very difficult for people at that time to, to feel that, you know, to feel that sense of criminality and that you were an outcast from society completely. Uh, I remember there was, a, there was an interview on Irish uh, TV on the day of that referendum and uh, this man, he was about 90 years old, very elderly man, coming out of a polling station with tears coming down his face and when he was asked why he was crying... His response was, because it's too late for me, but it's not too late for others. And, you know, I think that's a very powerful statement about what Ireland has been over the years and how difficult it was for any gay man or gay woman to survive within that, that atmosphere. How did you 
or if if you did, did you, how did you put the experiences of, of your own growing up in like the late seventies, early eighties, um, into the character of Cyril Avery? I mean, I, I don't wish to suggest that you are Cyril Avery in any way or to any great extent, but it, obviously you've you've seen times change as you were growing up uh, as a as a young boy and grown into a teenager. How have you managed to instill that into the character? Well, I mean, there are certainly aspects of him that would be similar to me, but some that aren't. You know, his his childhood is very different to mine. I had a very happy childhood. I mean, he has a generally happy childhood, but I had parents who actually would say that they loved me yeah. and, you know, <laughs> hopefully still do, um, despite the fact that my father read this book and has described it as filthy and scandalous. <laughs> but I think he means it affectionately. But there are, there are certainly parts of him that, that would be like me. He's He's something of a loner. He's quite isolated. Um, he he doesn't have the greatest social skills, I think, in some way. Um, he he struggles struggles to form relationships, really, maybe because of of how he has had to pass his uh, his life as a young person. But he's also an optimist, you know, and he never really lets things get him down. So, lots of terrible things happen to him in this book, and he doesn't get bitter, you know. He doesn't uh, blame anybody for anything. He's not an angry person. And I'm not an angry person. He's quite calm and uh, he's just trying to live the best life that he can, really. Well, Cyril eventually escapes Ireland and heads to Amsterdam. This leads us on to your next object, which is actually a model of a building in Amsterdam. Let's see what, what we've got here. Can you describe it for us, John? Yeah, my niece actually gave me this about six months ago. It's uh, just a small model of uh, one of those tall, narrow houses in Amsterdam. Um, which I keep on my desk in my study because um, Amsterdam is my favourite place in Europe. I go there at least once a year for a week or two. And it's just, uh, there's something about it that I that I love. I love the canals. I love the the people there. I love all the bicycles going around. It's it's, it's a very different sort of city. Uh, and because I knew that in, in this novel, uh, I would have to get Cyril out of Ireland at some point. Yeah. You know, one of the places I chose was was Amsterdam. And wrote most of that section in Amsterdam, which I generally like to do when I'm setting something outside of it. So I brought him there because Amsterdam, of course, historically speaking, would be the most liberal, sexually speaking, the most liberal city that there there is. Uh, so I thought when he would leave Ireland at the end of the first section, um, this would be a natural place for him to end up. And it's there that he actually really starts to come to terms with himself um, without giving anything away to potential readers. He has made so many mistakes by the time he gets to Amsterdam. He's messed up his life so badly that he really needs to just like reboot, so to speak, and yeah. start over. And when he arrives there, he is basically saying, right, I'm not going to be this frightened little boy anymore. I'm a grown man. I'm 28 years old and I'm going to embrace who I am. I'm going to accept who I am. And Amsterdam gives him that freedom to do that. And he's happy there. And he falls in love for the first time with somebody who falls in love back. Yeah. And that's something that he never would have imagined could happen in his life. And um, it just seemed like the right place. Well, from Amsterdam, it goes to New York mm. and the height of the AIDS epidemic. And I wondered, did you also go to New York? Obviously, New York yeah. is a very different place now than it was in the mid-80s. What were your experiences in New York? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been to, to New York many times, but I, I did go again when I was writing this and, and you know, do some research on um, the hospitals which were specifically dedicated to AIDS patients in those days and to read about, you know, some of the things that would happen there. Of course, if you're going to write a book about a gay character uh, between 1945 and 2015, then, and if you're going to bring him 
through the 1980s. This was obviously a subject that I would have to write about. And I think we forget now the the terror and the fear that was going on in the, the 80s. Now, I was only a teenager, but I can remember like when my dad was driving me to school or whatever, if there was a news report on um, on radio uh, about what was going on. And it did seem like it was a plague. It did seem like it was a punishment. And for teenagers to feel that, that my God, you know, if you if you actually act on any of these urges, you're going to die. Yeah. And the way that you would read, you know, with the more extreme uh, people who would who would say it was a punishment from God and it yeah. was proof of this, that or the other. Just getting back into that horror and the fact that even there was doctors that would be afraid to treat patients. Mm-hmm. Um, there was even, you know, in New York at that time, I think I mentioned it in the book, where AIDS patients weren't, AIDS victims were not allowed to be brought to the same morgues yeah. as non-AIDS related deaths. And like, when you're dead, you're dead. Yeah. You know, and it just seemed extraordinary that that was the case. And I found out a lot of information like this that I, I used in that chapter. This is like the darkest chapter of all. And um, I think a very important chapter in the book. It is. It's very strong, very moving. Let's hear a final clip from the audio book of The Heart's Invisible Theories, read by Stephen Hogan. I imagine that everyone around that table assumed that I was a virgin when the fact was I had probably had more sex than any of them, even Julian, albeit in far less romantic settings. But they had experienced things that I never had, pleasures that I felt certain were superior to the ephemeral thrill of a quickly forgotten climax. I knew nothing, for example, of foreplay or seduction, of how it might feel to meet a stranger in a bar and strike up a conversation, mindful of the possibility that it might lead somewhere more interesting. The truth was, if I was not screwing within ten minutes of meeting a man, then it was probably never going to happen at all. My Pavlovian response to an orgasm was to pull up my pants and run away. I had never had sex during daytime. Instead, it was a shameful activity to be conducted in haste, in hiding and in darkness. I associated sexual congress with the night air, with the outdoors, with my shirt on and my trousers around my ankles. I knew the sensation of tree bark imprinting itself against the palms of my hands as I fucked someone in a park, and the smell of sap against my face as a stranger pushed against me from behind. Sex was not scored by sighs of pleasure, but by the scurrying urgency of rodents in the undergrowth and the sound of cars rushing past in the distance, not to mention the associated fear that from those same roads might come the unforgiving scream of Garda sirens, responding to the outraged phone call of a traumatised dog walker. I had no idea what it would be like to wrap my arms around a lover beneath the sheets as we fell asleep, whispering words of gentle affection that drifted carelessly into sleepy tenderness. I had never woken with another person or been able to satisfy my tenacious early morning desire with an unapologetic partner. I could number more sexual partners in my history than anyone I knew, but the difference between love and sex could be summed up for me in eight words. I loved Julian. I had sex with strangers. Your dad was right. It's I, uh, filthy. I was just thinking that. It's, it's, <laughs> this is why he calls it filthy and scandalous. Uh, what's, it, what's it like for you listening to the audio book? Is this the first? It's embarrassing, it? actually, since <laughs> they all seem to be. Um, no, it's, it's good. I, I haven't actually heard it before. So, it, But then there's moments where you hear something. There was a passage earlier on where there was the line, um, 
mendacity and deceit. And I thought to myself as I heard that, isn't that the same thing? You know, <laughs> so you hear it and you think, you know, I could have made that line a bit better. Too late now. Yeah. It's uh, time for your final object, yeah. which is actually two objects. It's two paintings. Let me see. Yeah. Uh, as, a, as somebody who's never seen them before, I'll try and describe them inadequately. Um, we have one that is very swirly, circular shapes coming out of a, a fog of squiggles and very colourful. And the other one is, it looks earthen, if if I can describe it like that, kind of earthy colours with four strips of brown going down the middle, almost like a, a, a paw scratch on the middle of the painting. Tell me about these. Are they from Australia, I believe? Yeah, um, this relates to my, my love affair with Australia. And both of these paintings were, were bought there and um, are on my walls at home. I visited Australia for the first time in 2007 when I was on a book tour for The Boy in the Striped Pyjamas. And I'd never, I'd never really thought about Australia particularly. I'd never had any great longing to go. But on that trip, uh, I was there for about four weeks and visiting a lot of cities. And I completely fell in love with the country. And I've gone every year since. In fact, I just got back from there. I spent Christmas and New Year's there uh, a couple of weeks ago. So I think I've had nine trips to Australia. And there's something about the country that I absolutely love. And so these two paintings, one, um, the one which you described with the paw print, really, um, is a, a New South Wales artist called Steve Kalsev. And uh, the other one is a, an Aborigine artist, Charmaine Pearl. And they just remind me of, of how much I love that country and what it means to me. I've written one young adult book, The Terrible Thing That Happened to Barnaby Brockett, which takes place there. But whenever I come back, I just want to, to go there again. Um, will you be setting uh, another novel in Australia, do you think? I think it's almost inevitable that yeah. I will. Um, I, I, I have an idea for one that uh, it might not be anytime soon, but at some point. I think there's also something special about the fact that when you're in Australia, the rest of the world is asleep. Yeah. You know, you wake up in the morning and you check your emails and you've got all yesterday's emails, but nobody's going to contact you for the rest of the day. You know, you're free. And they don't really play a, a great part in the the troubles of the rest of the world, I feel. And maybe that's because of the time difference. You know, the Australians just seem to get on with their lives themselves and in a very healthy way. So I, I, I will spend my life returning to Australia and particularly to Sydney because that's, that's my, my favourite uh, part of Australia. I, I will definitely spend my life going there. And will Ireland always be home for you, even though you're obviously very fond of Australia and travelling elsewhere? Yeah, it's just it's it's very much part of who I am that that homebody sense the the feeling of safety and security there. I'm very fortunate. Uh, I'm able to travel. Uh, I'm able to see parts of the world when I want to. But mostly, I just want to go home. <laughs> that feels like a good place to end. Thank you very much, John. And uh, hopefully, we'll see that new novel very soon. Thank you. The Book Thief by Marcus Zusak. Narrated in the all-knowing, matter-of-fact voice of death, witnessing the story of the citizens of Himmel Street, The Book Thief is a life-changing tale of the cruel twists of fate and the coincidences on which all our lives hinge. This is also a joyous look at the power of a book to nourish the soul. Its uplifting ending will make all readers weep. Looking back, Liesel could tell exactly what her papa was thinking when he scanned the first page of the gravedigger's handbook. As he realised the difficulty of the text, he was clearly aware that such a book was hardly ideal. There were words in there that he'd have trouble with himself. 
not to mention the morbidity of the subject. As for the girl, there was a sudden desire to read it that she didn't even attempt to understand. On some level, perhaps she wanted to make sure her brother was buried right. Whatever the reason, her hunger to read that book was as intense as any ten-year-old human could experience. The Book Thief is available now to download and own on Audible and iTunes.